Well, greetings from Nebraska. You've probably never had anybody from Nebraska stand up here before. Well, Heather's been in Nebraska area, so uh, we are, my family is located right in the middle of Nebraska, and so a lot of people will say, oh, I've been through Nebraska, I've driven through on I-80, and I always want to say I'm really sorry, because uh, if you've ever just had to drive through on I-80, uh, you really haven't seen the good parts of Nebraska, in my opinion. So we live about 30 miles north of I-80 uh, along the Platte River, and uh, I'm a big sportsman. Uh, if you were there last night, you know this, and, and so it's really, we have a little acreage uh, surrounded by cornfields on all sides, and so for me and for our family, it's like the perfect place to live. We can hunt and fish and, and do all sorts of fun things, but I just want to say a couple things about visiting you. Um, I have never received uh, quite this warm and hospitable welcome. I've never had anybody be mean to me, but... Uh, your community is, in my opinion, just very uniquely uh, loving and kind. And uh, getting to know Andy and, and uh, Pastor Matt and just the other, other people that were helping last night, uh, I have just felt very welcomed. And it says a lot about you as an entire community. Um, I would also say something about Matt that um, I've known him a little bit, mostly through online stuff and, and mutual respect uh, for him as an author, uh, but you have one of those really special pastors that, uh, of course, he loves people, and I've seen that. I've heard that, all, I've heard that in him and Heather and his family, but he also has a really great mind and a high view of Scripture, but just a great mind for thinking about Scripture and communicating it, and I'll tell you, I hope you know that's really special because sometimes you don't see that that combination of a real love for people with a real ability uh, to handle God's word in, the, in one person. And I've, I'm excited for you because I think that's a part of what I'm seeing here that's pretty special. So anyway, thanks for letting me be here. Uh, any of you watching March Madness at all? I don't know if you do that out here or not. I don't know why I do because Nebraska hasn't hit the tournament in I don't know how long, but uh, I do kind of like to watch March Madness, and if you've ever watched some of these games, and you see it in high school sports too, uh, every now and then one of the teams will start to lose heart, and you can just see it in their faces that they're, they're just giving up. And you don't really just see it in one person's face, you'll see it in, in the way the entire team carries themselves. They just kind of have this slumped look and the coaches kind of look that way and they just lose heart and the thing about losing heart is when a team starts to lose heart like that uh, the other team somehow can smell the blood in the water and they ratchet things up a, a notch and you will not win a game if you lose heart you just won't the other team will play better you'll play worse and it seems like in this in this March Madness tournament every now and then you'll see this happen, and you will feel so bad for that team that has lost heart because they're just going to get creamed. Um, and you see that in sports. You see it in high school sports. I think there's a losing heart that's possible uh, for the Christian life. Uh, I think that it's possible to, to get discouraged in the Christian life. Um, and, I, and I just, what's the path forward when that happens? 
When you get up in the morning, you, you pray, you have some time with the Lord, and, and you head into your day, and, and, and then you spend a full day being reminded that it is not easy uh, to live faithful to Christ in this world today. I mean, there are all sorts of pressures and all sorts of things coming at you. Or for some of us, you know, you, you head into your day and you want to be faithful to the Lord and you actually experience uh, persecution of some kind or, or some kind of pain. Um, not to mention the fact that we're so connected today in our world uh, globally that we all, a lot of us, have a real heart for all the pain and all the suffering that's happening all over the world for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we love them, and there's oftentimes, other than prayer, it feels like there's not much more you can do. And uh, it just seems to me that it's really easy, uh, as Christians, in this life of faith, to, to lose heart. What do you do when you see that coming? What would the Lord say to us about these times when we lose heart? Um, I would invite you to turn with me. We're going to look at a parable where Jesus addresses just this. Uh, what it looks like to lose heart and what to do, how to think when we're losing heart as Christians. Uh, turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. This is kind of an interesting parable. This is, uh, this is one of those head-scratching parables, I think. But when you get to Luke 18, you're going to see right away in verse 1 that Jesus tells us that this parable is for people, it's for Christians who are losing heart, uh, who are feeling discouraged. Look what it says in Luke 18, verse 1. It says, And and He told them a parable to the effect that that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. One of the things we do when we look at parables is uh, we always ask questions about who's he talking to, kind of what's the situation in the parable. And, and when we do that here, we see that, that Jesus is talking to the disciples. Sometimes he's given his parables and the Pharisees are listening in or uh, you know, people who don't believe in him at all. But, but this is, uh, these, are, these are his guys, his followers, and he's talking to the disciples here. So... Why would the disciples need a parable on losing heart? Why would that apply to them here? Well, if you actually look back into chapter 17, I think you see the reason uh, they need this parable. Look at verses 22 through 25. Jesus said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Right there, Jesus tells the disciples, and this is right before the parable, uh, they're heading to Jerusalem. And he tells the disciples that there's going to be a day where it's going to be so tough that you're going to, you're going to want the end of the age. You're going to want me to return. And he says here, and I love how he words it, he says, 
I will return, he says, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So you're going to go through such pain and, and loss that you're going to long for my return, and my return is going to happen. We've all been outside when there's been like the beginning of a storm that about takes your heart uh, to standing still, and it just lights up the sky. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be like that when I come back. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be, it's going to be dynamic. That day will happen. But he's saying to his disciples here, before we get to that, you're going to see me suffer many, many things. And in fact, our parable here in verse in chapter 18 is sandwiched between this promise, this statement Jesus makes, and then you get just a little bit further in the book of Luke. You flip a page over and you see Jesus and his disciples enter Jerusalem. And these men who love Jesus, they know they've, they've found their rabbi and their friend and they love him and they have to watch him be arrested. They have to watch him be falsely accused. They have to watch him be executed. They have to watch all these things. And, and that is going to be so incredibly sad for these disciples. I would say beyond sadness though, I mean, these disciples are going to see everything that Jesus goes through and they're going to say, this is, this is the most unfair thing that has ever happened. They're going to struggle with justice and fairness, and, and it's going to be overwhelming. And this is what I love about Jesus is he knows this. He knows what he's about to go through, but he knows and cares about what these disciples are about to go through. This, this discouragement, this, this overwhelming pressure on these disciples to lose heart, give it up. Let the enemy smell blood in the water. Just throw in the towel here. He knows what they're going to go through, and so he gives them this parable in Luke chapter 18 uh, about a widow and a judge. Um, the parable is in verses 2 through 5. And so let's look at that. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And we will stop with that. This judge, uh, he's quite the sweet guy, isn't he? He's quite the man. Um, it says he doesn't fear God. We can kind of get that. He doesn't believe in God. So there's no, there's no idea that, wow, God sees what I do here in the courtroom and he's going to deal with it if I get it wrong. That's, that's pretty easy to understand. He doesn't fear God. But it also says here that he doesn't respect man. And if, and if you think about that, I mean, just at face value, that statement that this judge doesn't respect man you could almost say, well, that's a good thing. I mean, if you're going to go before a judge, you want a judge sitting on that bench that is not worrying about, oh, what is his wife going to think if I, if I convict him or if I find him guilty? What, what, is, what is her family going to do with me if I find her guilty? 
I mean, there's a sense in which you could read doesn't respect man and you could say, well, that's a good thing. He's impartial. But we know from the, the text and just the way it reads here that it's not a good thing, that Jesus isn't saying something, setting up something positive about this judge. It's, it's, it's kind of one negative phrase with two parts here. He doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect man. It's interesting, you go back into some of the, the older uh, translations and interpretations of this passage, and the way that many people read this in, in this culture was that this judge was not ashamed before people. And in this culture, in this day, one of the worst things that you could say about somebody is that he didn't feel shame before people. You see, in the, in the Middle Eastern culture, in this culture here, it's a real uh, shame-pride culture. And it's very different from our culture. So sometimes we can have a hard time understanding how they think. In our culture, in, and we've talked about this some today and last night already, but in our culture, uh, it's really about performance and, and doing good. And so if, if your child, if you have a son and he goes out and he does a great job, uh, raking the leaves. One of the best things you can say to your child is, you did a great job today. You, you're a good worker. And you can really compliment him on his, his accomplishment there. Now, if your son didn't do a good job, then one of the harshest things we could say, or the way we would communicate that, is we could say to him, this is really poor quality work. I mean, your, your performance here on the yard was, was not good. And that's kind of how we think in this culture, but, but in the ancient kind of uh, Middle Eastern culture, that's not how they thought. They thought in terms of pride, not a negative thing, but just pride versus shame. So if your son went out and did a great job, a father could say to the son, you have brought great pride to our family. Or you have made me so proud, my son. And that son would just beam because pride was... Pride was what you shoot for. I mean, it's what you go for. You want people to be motivated by pride. The other side of that is shame. If that son went out and, and uh, threw the rake to the side, didn't rake the yard, and, and, uh, and just messed around all day, one of the worst things or the strongest statement that dad could say to that son is, you have really shamed our family. You have brought shame to our family name. And again, that's not a bad thing. That's just... The two sides of, of motivation in that culture were you want to bring pride and you want to avoid shame. And so for them to say, for Jesus to say that there's a judge out there who doesn't even have the honor anymore, doesn't have the, the self-respect or the social conscience to even care anymore about whether or not what he does in a courtroom brings pride to his name or shame to his name, you have got one scary judge. You have got a guy here that sees himself as above God. What do I care what God thinks? There isn't a God. He's not going to do anything to me. What do I care what culture thinks? I don't feel pride. I don't feel shame. You've got a sociopathic judge. I mean, now, now what, what Jesus is doing here is he's really setting up. He's, he's, all of this speaks to how utterly hopeless the widow is. 
Look what it says about the widow in verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversaries. You see, you can't find, I don't think you can find a clearer picture of somebody that could, should be losing heart. Somebody who is against all odds, who has, who has no opportunity, no chance whatsoever at, uh, at justice here. See, the widow in ancient uh, ancient culture, ancient Israel, and this time, and even beyond this time, the widow was was the person in society most vulnerable. I mean, if you're going to tell a parable and you choose a widow, your your hearers, Jesus' disciples, are going to say he just chose the person in society that's most easy to take advantage of, the the most powerless person in society, and he just put this widow up against this judge? God throughout the scriptures, in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, um, it's not just uh, this society in Jesus' day, it's, it's in almost every society in history, the widow has been somebody easily taken advantage of. And that's why you see in, in almost every era of the scriptures and every genre of the scriptures you see God's heart to care for the widow to uh, it says in Isaiah verse 17 of chapter 1 to plead the widow's cause you you get into the New Testament you get into the book of James James is a tell it like it is kind of guy I struggle with that a little bit I love it but man he challenges me because he just boils it down and there's no wiggle room with James well, in the book of James, James says at one point, okay, I'm just going to lay it out there. You want to know God's heart? You want to know what pure and undefiled religion is? I mean, no messing around here. You want to live the heart of God. It's to care for orphans and widows. No question, in every society, widows were the, the easiest to take advantage of. They were the most powerless. Um, this widow had no hope against a judge that did not even believe in God. A judge that could not be swayed or, or influenced at all by what society would feel about him in this pride-shame culture. Um, and not only that, but there's a, there's a good chance that this widow in this text um, is absolutely alone in life. Because in this culture, usually women didn't go to court. Uh, it, it's sad, the Israelites and the Romans, and in this day, they did not actually have the heart of God on this. But in this culture, uh, women were not considered as value, valuable or as equal as men. They just weren't considered to be uh, quite as human, with quite as much dignity. And, and so if you, had, if you had a cause, if you had something to, to argue that needed to be done, you would never send a woman to court against a male judge. You just wouldn't do that because, I mean, she wouldn't be taken seriously. And, and so if you're not going to send a woman, a woman to court against a male judge, you're certainly not going to send a widow. So again, there's a good chance that this is setting up this picture of not... Not only that it's a vulnerable person, but it's a vulnerable person that's absolutely alone in this world. Up against a force that, 
that has all the power and no heart, no conscience. You want to talk about somebody who ought to be losing heart. It's this widow that Jesus is is, uh, describing to his disciples. It's not hard to see uh, what Jesus is doing here uh, with this widow. He is speaking to his disciples. And he's, he's describing this widow and he's, he's likening this widow to any of his children who are in this world who by following him for the sake of their faith are going through some kind of injustice, some kind of pain. I would say just some kind of discouragement. So that could be his disciples. It could be widows. Uh, it could be orphans. But in this context, it was his disciples who were about to see and witness something incredibly painful and something incredibly unfair and, and unjust. And this widow's single request here, she says, is to give me justice against my adversary. I think it's important to see what the widow isn't asking for. Uh, she's not. She's not making this an emotional plea to the judge to crush my enemies. Um, a lot of times, when you deal with parables, Jesus will set up a really negative figure, and then he'll set up a positive figure. And the really negative figure is the one negative figure, and, and it's kind of the 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 contrasting character, the foil in, in that parable. And, and so we could want to find negatives in both, but we'd be going further than Jesus here. Clearly the judge is the one suspect. Um, and the widow is really not the one suspect at all. Her plea here is simply, I'm a powerless person. I'm dependent on another. Something unjust and unfair is happening. And she's pleading to the judge who has the power to stop it. She's pleading to him to stop it. Use your power. Use your justice to end this, this unfair, this, this unjust situation. It's the cry of a helpless person, a powerless person for vindication and for justice. And it's a fair cry. It's a beautiful cry. And here's the thing. Does her cry work? Not at first. Not at second. Not at third. In fact, we don't know how many times this widow goes back to the judge uh, and and asks for justice. It just says in verse 3 that she just kept coming. (laughs) She just keeps coming. And then we're told that the judge, not out of fear of God, he didn't somehow grow a conscience here and remember, oh, that's why I went to law school. I really wanted to help, you know, hurting people. No, not out of a fear of God or the law, not out of what people are going to think of him. But simply, he's just absolutely annoyed with this woman who will not quit. He knows she won't quit. He finally says, all right, I'll give you justice. She just wears him down. Um, this is kind of a funny story about me. It's embarrassing. I'm not proud of this moment, although I, I love having this story to tell. When I was, when I was a kid, uh, 
I was obnoxious as a kid. And uh, when I was a kid, my mom got a call from the principal at the school when I was in second grade. And the principal said to my mom, you need to come to the school. There's been an incident. One of Zeke's teachers kicked Zeke. And my mom's like, what? (laughs) And so she gets in the car. She drives to school. She gets there, and she walks into the principal's office. And I'm sitting on one side of the room crying. And the teacher is sitting on the other side of the room. She's crying. And my mom storms in. She's looking at things, and she looks at the principal, and she's like, what happened? And the principal looks at the teacher and says, I think you should tell her. And the teacher just starts sobbing. And she goes, it's true. I kicked him. But you know what it's like. (laughs) She goes, it's like being nibbled to death by a thousand little minnows. Well, that's what's kind of going on with this judge here is he's, he's being just annoyed. He's just being nibbled to death by minnows with this woman. Uh, it says here that um, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The literal translation of that, the way that phrase actually reads is that, that she will beat me black and blue and will be the end of me. It's like a boxing metaphor. It's the same metaphor, same picture that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about beating his body and making it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I won't be disqualified. It's the same image. The judge is saying, this woman is just, she's going to be the end of me. She's going to beat me up. So he, he just gives her justice. Just gives it to her. And then Jesus interprets the parable for us in verses 6 through 8. It says, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Okay, listen. He's saying, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? Jesus is saying, look at this stone-hearted, selfish, absolutely self-centered judge. And, and look at how, because of the, the widow's persistence, she just didn't quit. She didn't throw in the towel. She didn't lose heart. She, she kept coming back. Look at how this 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 worldly judge who doesn't care about people, look at how he ended up giving in and giving her justice. And Jesus says, how much more will your God, who loves you, who you couldn't annoy on your worst day, how much will your your Father who sits in heaven see everything that you're going through? And one day give perfect justice and vindication for it. See, Jesus is using an argument here that's sometimes called going from the easy to the hard. um, Or the lesser to the greater. And and what that simply means is he's saying, if, if this happens down here in this human realm, 
with just flawed people who don't think or feel like God. I mean, they're, they're not compassionate people. If it'll happen here, then how much more will it happen for you with a God who's perfect and a judge who's perfect, but he's a judge that loves you and, and isn't bothered by you at all, isn't going to be bothered by your requests, knows what we need before we ask it. So, so the promise is here that, that it will happen, that God will bring justice and, and, and vindication. You just have to wait and, and see. But that's the hard part. That's the hard part, the, the waiting and the, the seeing. Uh, there is so much suffering and loss happening today for God's people. Um, I'll be honest, and I'm right in this with you, um, but it's hard in these moments for us in Pennsylvania or in Nebraska sometimes to talk about uh, the suffering and the, and the pain that the disciples are about to go through or that other, other brothers and sisters in the world right now are going through. It's hard for us in some ways to, to emotionally get into that, connect with it, need it as much as, as the disciples needed it. And I'll tell you, some of that is not our fault. In fact, some of that we, we really need to give thanks to God for because we live in a country that for many, many years has given us uh, freedoms and protection of those freedoms and religious freedoms so that we could meet like this. We could have a sportsman's event like last night. And we could say anything we want. Nobody struck me last night. Uh, maybe wanted to, but nobody hit me. I didn't get locked up. We're here this morning. We're singing anything we want about Jesus. Saying anything we want about Jesus. Reading any passage of God's Word we want. Nobody's storming in here, arresting us, beating us, kicking us out of town. And what, a, what an incredible set of blessings and freedoms to give thanks for and, and the people that have helped provide that for us. So some of this isn't our fault. I do, I do think, though, um, kind of as an aside, I think that as a culture, because we've lived in such safety and such comfort, that I think we're inclined at times to overvalue those things uh, to the point where we may miss opportunities at times to go or to send our kids or our grandkids into these dangerous places where if they're faithful like we want to be faithful and we want them to be faithful, they very likely will face the same things that these disciples are facing. I think sometimes we really do, and I'm right there with you, uh, I'm speaking from my own life here. I think we can value safety and comfort to the point where we actually are missing some of the suffering that would be a byproduct of faithful witness to Christ. But uh, in many places of this world today, right now as we meet, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering. And they are this widow that is just crying out for justice. And for the people in this world who have the power to stop the carnage and the, the pain, that they would stop it. Uh, I think of what's happening in North Korea where entire families who know Christ are imprisoned 
or they're forced into hard labor. Um, people are dying because they're either put to death for their faith or they're dying because they're being worked to death because of their faith in these, in these work camps. We actually don't know the number of people in North Korea that are dying because of professional faith because we can't get in there. It, it's the top of the list when you look at countries out there that are being persecuted as Christians for their faith. It's at the top. And we don't even know what's happening there because we can't get in there. Uh, I think of Afghanistan, who many people who leave Islam, they see Jesus and they leave Islam to convert to Christianity, are being put to death by their own families because of the shame that it brings to their family to have a Christian in their family. Uh, I think of India. India is pretty low on the list when it comes to persecuted Christians, you know, countries right now. But in India, they estimate that approximately 40 major events happen every week to Christians and churches because of their testimony for Christ. This is churches being burned down, pastors being kicked out of their houses, people being beat in the streets because of their profession of faith. This is today. This is this week in uh, India. These Christians in these places are longing for, with their mind and with their heart, full emotion. They are longing for justice. They don't want to see these accusers crushed. They don't want to see them tortured. They don't want to see them go through the same things they're going through. They want to see the evil stop and they want these people to come to know Christ. And they're longing. They're pleading with God. They're pleading with these people. The, the, the pleading of the widow. They're saying, please, just give me justice. What is true, you have the power to bring it about. And, and it's tough for us because we live so far away from that. But we must be in solidarity with their suffering. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 12.26 about the church, if one member suffers, all suffer together. We must feel with them this longing for justice and for vindication and for the crimes and the persecution and the death to stop. We must feel that with them. And we must wait with them. And I'm telling you, the waiting is the hard part, it feels like. Um, I feel some consolation or some encouragement from the fact that, that we're not the only ones that struggle with the waiting for this lightning in the sky moment. Uh, it's interesting. You get to the book of Revelations and you get this picture of, of God in his, in his throne room and, and the people who have actually died. They've been put to death because of their testimony for Christ and the word of God. And, uh, and John's given a picture of these people who are still waiting and it says in Revelation 6.10 uh, that these people are saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Similar to the widow's plea. How long do we need to wait for, for justice to take place? You remember what these people are told? Wait a little longer. It actually says that 
that they're told to rest a little longer. And, and that revelation was given, what, 2,000 years ago? So there, there's clearly a difference between our perception of time and our struggles with waiting and how slow the seconds on a clock can feel as they tick by and how God views uh, time. Because it says here, and will not God give justice? It's a, it's a quick thing. Will not God give justice to a, his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. But it certainly seems like a big challenge of faith to us to say, God, your timing and my timing uh, are not the same, but you're the eternal one. You are the perfect one. And I will wait. And I will not lose heart. Um, what really encourages me is that Jesus, and this is part of the incarnation, but Jesus is God. So he knows God's perception of time. He knows God's plan and, and, and sees things as an eternal God would see it, but he became fully human, so he knows us too. And he knew waiting. And he knew how painful suffering could be on this, in this life for, for faithful people. And uh, so he gave us this parable. He gave us this parable to know what to do while we wait. What to do while it seems like God's people and perhaps us are just getting whooped as we try to be faithful. And, and, and how hard this life can get. But what's he telling us to do here? I mean, that's, that's the question here. What through the parable is he telling us, go out and do this now as my disciples... What's he, what's he telling us to do here? Is he telling us to just be obnoxiously persistent with God? To just grab a hold of God's ear while we're praying and just say, God, I'm just going to keep saying this over and over and over and again. I'm just going to keep bothering you because that's what the widow is doing. And is he saying that God will get so bothered by us that he'll just finally say, all right, I'm coming. Jesus, go down, make that lightning. I mean, are we just supposed to nag God and tell until this moment happens, is that what we're being told in this parable? No, of course not. Uh, that's not what we're being told. No, the message is uh, God's children, you and me, we have to stay tenacious. We have to stay persistent in our faith and with our prayers, and in our hope, and in our waiting, we cannot lose heart. We cannot give up. We can't look at the suffering. We can't look at the losses. We can't look at how sometimes things feel like they're going backwards. We can't look at any of these things and say, I give up. I'm not going to pray as much. I'm not going to hope as much. Quit thinking about Christ's return because it's just not going to happen anytime soon. No, Jesus is saying, you just can't quit. You need to be tenacious. You need to be, you need to be praying and, and having this faith 
Because it's going to happen. That's the question. And it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting what he does with this parable here. Um, I, I read one commentator that said with a lot of Jesus' parables that there's a sting in the tail. Uh, a sting in the tail. And what he's saying by that is uh, that a lot of times he brings up these parables and there's a, there's a good character and there's a bad character. And, and uh, sometimes it's not who you think it is and sometimes it flip-flops. And, and, uh, and then at the end of the parable, there's the way that Jesus ends it here. The people listening are like, whoa, did he just say that to us? I'll give you an example of a completely different parable, but the, the parable of the prodigal son. So he gives us this parable and it shows God the Father, his eagerness to show mercy and grace and restore the, the broken sinner who comes back and doesn't have a plan, doesn't have any hope, but then the sting in the tail. Remember the older brother? Tells about this older brother. And he looks at these religious people who have put all their hope in the fact that they've been good. Well, look at us, God. We've been moral. We've kept your word. We've memorized all of it. And Jesus tells this parable and kind of gives them a look. And the sting in the tail is, are you going to be like that older brother? Ouch. <laughs> well, the sting in the tail about this one is, who would want to be like the widow? I mean, really. <laughs> you, you hear this thing begin and you think, a judge? Wow. I'd like to be a judge. That's a pretty powerful position. I bet he's eating well every night. And the sting in the tail here is at the end, uh, Jesus is saying to them, will you be like the widow? Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's an interesting statement. What, it, what it's not merely saying is when that lightning happens and Jesus returns, is he going to find just a ton of people in this world that kind of believe in him? You know, that, you know, I, I, I agree with more than I disagree with. I, I go to church for the most part, and I pray sometimes. I usually pray for my kids, but if a missionary comes through, I'll pray for the missionary that day. And he's not asking here, am I going to return and, and I'm going to see kind of this, this general kind of casual, comfortable type of faith that, uh, that barely gets in because it does, it does understand the, the basics of salvation and gives belief to that. He's not asking for that. Jesus is specifically saying here to his followers who are in painful situations, his disciples, when I return, am I going to find the faith that the widow had? The manner of faith, the persistence that I will never quit, that I will keep hoping. Am I going to find that faith on the earth when I light up the sky one day? That's the challenge to us from this parable.